creation has been longing for, the hour that, that would be the fulfillment of the promise made in the garden that God would send a rescuer to save humanity from their sins. This is the moment that everything will change. Sinful creatures can be made right and once again enjoy fellowship with their creator. This is the moment when spiritual life triumphs over spiritual death. It's the climax of the, the story of the gospel. It's the climax of human history. And in the moment, Jesus stops to pray. It's often called, and, and you may have heard John 17 referred to as the high priestly prayer or the, the real Lord's prayer, right? Where he's not teaching his disciples how to pray necessarily, but he himself is pouring his heart out before God. And so it gives us a rare glimpse into Jesus' consciousness, his perspective, his understanding on suffering that's right around the corner. It, it pulls the curtain back and allows us to see Jesus' heart and mind on the, on the, on the, on the precipice, on the, on the very edge of this suffering right before his arrest and his two phony trials and his crucifixion. And in that prayer, as we'll see in the next four weeks, Jesus takes inventory of his earthly ministry. He walks through in his own heart and mind everything that he's accomplished, everything that he's done, everything that he's said, and he gives one final account to the Father of, of all of that. And then he prays for his current disciples, those that have been traveling with him doing ministry, observing the miracles that he's done, and he prays for his future ones. Those of us that are sitting in this room this morning and around the world in churches gathered just like ours, the richness of this chapter is so evident as we begin to dig in, it is, it is full of truth. Some of it difficult, some of it hard maybe for us to wrap our minds around, some of it we'll never understand, much of it applicable and uh, that would give us marching orders even for today as we leave the, the gathered uh, body of Christ today. So I'm going to ask one of our elders, David Amos, to come and read going to read all of John 17 for us this morning, and then we'll dive into the text. And so you listen to this prayer. We're reading it together. We're not breaking it up because Jesus prayed it as one prayer. And so we want to hear it that way four weeks in a row. So you come, brother. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence, with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you have given me out of the world. Yours they were, and you have given them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them, I am not praying for the world, but for those who you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them. And not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, 
that they may have that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world, and for their sake I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but for also those who will believe in me through their word, and that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I am you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. This is the word of the Lord. Before we jump in and try to understand this text, let me... um maybe just say that this this series and, and we understand is going to be a bit different because the preaching will be a bit different and if you're anything like me you're probably going to have the feeling at some point this morning wait Matt you skipped that <laughs> wait there was a phrase you skipped and, and you didn't explain that and I would really love to understand that can you go back and, uh, and it's going to be tough because if you're like me you, you want to get it now uh, we didn't skip it it just makes more sense to cover it with the next observations we're going to make in the coming weeks and so just hang on uh, what, what you really have is a four-hour sermon that I didn't figure any of you would want to sit here for four hours, and so we've broken it up into four weeks, and so just come back next week, and hopefully some of these, some of these questions you have this morning may be resolved for you a little better in the weeks ahead. So this morning, uh, see what the Father has given the Son. We're going to make uh, six observations this morning in the text that as um, our brother David has read for us, that, that the Father bestows, gives the Son. Uh, the first one that we see there, as soon as we start reading the chapter and, and hearing Christ's prayer, is that the Father has given the Son the authority to give eternal life. And you see it in verse 2. In verse 2, Jesus is praying to the Father. He's talking about himself in the third person, and he says this. Since you have given him, meaning himself, Jesus, authority over all flesh, authority to give eternal life uh, to all whom you have given to him. And the, the, the crises, if you think about our lives even, how crises and tragedy, um, circumstances like that, have a way of revealing the type of people we are, have a, a way of revealing what's most important to us. You've heard me say it before, if you want to see someone's spiritual maturity, uh, observe their lives, watch how they respond when they don't get their way, when things go terrible uh, or, or, or a way that they wouldn't have wanted for their lives. And crisis does that sort of thing. What con- it shows us what concerns dominate our thoughts. What, what do we do when trouble comes? How do we respond? Do we panic? Do we freak out? Do we worry? Are we filled with anxiety and fear? Where do we turn? And the same could be said for, for the fully human Jesus Christ as he walked on this earth. 
And there's certainly never a crisis that we would endure so great as having the weight of the sins of the world on your shoulders, which is what Christ is facing here as he makes this prayer before the Father. That's where he turns, to the Father. And as he turns to his Father in prayer, the first thing he asks for is for the Father to glorify him. Now, we'll see some more on that in the weeks to come. But the first acknowledgement he makes, the first truth that he speaks, first foundational bedrock that he lays this prayer upon is the purpose for which he came to the earth. You see how crisis and, and the thing that's awaiting him, the, the tragedy, the, the suffering, the agony that's just around the corner for him is leading him back to the thing he came to this earth for, which is to give eternal life. And so in the midst of that crisis, his thoughts never left his purpose for coming. Meaning that there's something bigger, as Christ is praying here, there's something bigger than the immediate fear of death or, or the fear, the, the dread that he may have felt about the suffering, the the agony that he felt thinking about the separation from the Father. And that thing is the eternal life that he's giving, the eternal life that he's bringing, that Jesus has been granted authority to, to give, to bestow. And so there's a question that as we look at this text, you may be already thinking, well, to whom is that going to be given to? And that's a question for us because the text answers that question for us. The text answers it in the verse we just read, verse 2. The eternal life to all whom you have given him, meaning Christ, meaning the Savior. This means that out of the great multitude of people that have lived, that have ever lived, that will ever exist, there are particular persons who were in some way, verse 2, given to Christ to receive salvation. Now in terms of doctrine and theology, we refer to this as the elect, the elect people of God. They're given by the Father to the Son. This is not an isolated incident where this comes up in Jesus' prayer, but it's something that he's talked about before. If you've studied John's gospel, John chapter 6, verse 37 through 39, this is what Jesus says. He says, all the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. I know this is deep stuff, and we're certainly not going to resolve all the tensions and questions that you may have, even in this moment as we read through this text. But if the Father has given the Son the gift of souls, humans, a remnant, an elect bride for all eternity, that he will in no way lose, he's made those people out of rebels, out of those that had, had get, went against what he had commanded, and he's made them sons and daughters. Well, then the next, I think, question for us as we wrestle with this text is, when did this exchange happen, right? If that's the gift of the Father to the Son, and it's, and it's happened uh, as a gift that he will never in any way lose, then when did this exchange take place? And the answer is eternity past. Now, this assumes that Christians were personally known, they were known by God, not just knowledge of them, but that he had intimacy with them in eternity past, which is exactly what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, Paul says this, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. So the takeaway from a doctrine like this is that in a prayer where we see Jesus acknowledging before the Father that he and he alone has the authority to bring salvation to his people that the Father has given him, that he will in no way lose, and that this happened before the foundation of the world. What's the application of a doctrine like this? Well, let me tell you what it's not. It's not, the takeaway is not that all of this is, is 
predetermined, predestined, and it's fatalistic, and there's no use in doing anything about it, so let's just sit back and let the chips fall where they may. That's not the application of a doctrine like this. No, John 3.16 would tell us that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Romans chapter 10, verse 13 says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So it means that if there are an elect of God, a people that God has gifted to the Son in eternity past, chosen before the foundation of the world, and Ephesians chapter 1 would say that there is, there are elect people out there that even perhaps in here there are some out there that haven't believed yet, that haven't called upon the name of Christ yet. And if God has elected someone to be given to the Son as a gift, an eternal bride for his Son, then there are those that he has elected to bring that good news to them so that they can hear and believe. And beautiful are the feet of those that would bring that good news. All of this works together. And so if God has done that, then he has called you, us, me, to bring that good news. And so we live with that tension this side of heaven because we're not going to resolve it. That's one takeaway, that we live with that tension that he has elected. There are elected ones out there that have not heard. And so we must go and open our mouths. The second takeaway is that we would marvel at his sovereignty, that we would marvel at his providence and his sovereignty and salvation, that in some mysterious way that our little finite brains cannot understand or comprehend, two things are absolutely true, that God is sovereign over salvation He chooses, he gives, verse 2, John 17, and Ephesians 1, verses 4 and 5. He's absolutely sovereign over salvation. And at the same time, we are responsible for responding to him. And that if we don't, we're held accountable for our rejection of Christ. Those two things are absolutely true. Charles Spurgeon he was once asked, you, you guys hear me quote Spurgeon all the time, a great preacher of the 19th century. He was asked one time by a, a member of his congregation if he could reconcile these two truths, God's sovereignty and salvation and man's responsibility to respond to the gospel. Spurgeon says, I wouldn't even try. And the, the confused parishioner kind of looked back up at Spurgeon and thinking, hey, I've, I've finally stumped the, the great preacher theologian. And he looked back at her and said, I wouldn't even try because I never try and reconcile friends. Friends. Yes, friends, he said. In the divine sovereignty of God and the human responsibility of man, these things are not enemies. They're not uneasy neighbors. They're not in an endless state of cold war. They're friends, and they work together, even if we don't understand how that is. That's the first truth we see here, that, that the Father has given the Son the authority to bestow salvation. Well, that's number one. We have five more, so we must move. Number two, in the text, we see that the Father has given the Son not just the ability to give salvation, but people out of this world. And we see that in multiple verses. So let me try to uh, seam this together for you. You might ask, you might think, well, that's a pretty obvious thing, Matt. Where, in the else, would, where, where else would the Father give the Son people from? The world. <laughs> This is an observation that's necessary for us to make because it comes up four times in the prayer. If you read back through, and I'll do this for us, you see four different times where this is being emphasized that specifically out of the world, now that language doesn't ring a bell for us maybe, but it would have for Jews, that God is the Father is giving the Son a people. And the reason that's important is because a shift is taking place here. National Israel, the Jews, the Israelite people, are not going to be the only people of God. The Gentiles are being included. They're being counted among that number, among his elect. Now, the the Jews knew that the the, the people of Israel were God's 
chosen, elect people of the Old Testament. We see it throughout the, the Old Testament that we study often at Poplar Spring. But something's happening here. And Jesus is including not just Jews, but the whole world. And we see that in Jesus' prayer. It's in, in verses 2, 6, 9, and 24. So I'm going to string those verses together for you. I'll tell you when I get to another one. But start with me, verse 2. It says, since you have given him, Jesus is talking about himself, authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And I'm moving to verse 6. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Moving to verse uh, 9. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, implying out of the world, for they are yours. And then verse 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be where I am and may see my glory you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. And this theme is coming up again and again, this authority, if you go back to verse 2, over all flesh. Now, that, that would mean all living creatures, and we certainly know that in him and through him, through Christ, all things were created. We know that, but in the context here, all flesh could mean all living creatures, but the the idea that he's talking about here would be applied to the whole human race. Every human being that's ever lived or ever will live, he has authority over their flesh. Now you think about the irony of that statement. When Jesus is about to be handed over to the Jewish priests and Roman soldiers, where his flesh will be mutilated by those that he has authority over their flesh. That's the beauty of it. That though Christ has all authority and, 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 and authority over every human soul that's ever lived or ever will live, he was sent here to this earth, to this world, to fulfill a mission where he would, by his own blood, purchase for himself a people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. And that's what he's alluding to here in this, this language of the, the whole earth. Those from out of the world that he has called to himself, that in every language, nation, every tribe, every tongue, there will be a people, a remnant of people that he's saving for his own possession, his bride, where they will enjoy him for all eternity. The classic Christmas carol rings true here. Joy to the world, not just to Israel, but joy to the world the Lord has come. Let earth, the whole earth, receive her king. That's who Jesus has in mind as he's praying here. The whole world. Believers in Uganda this morning and Malaysia this morning that are meeting in secret. Them. He has them on his heart here in John 17. The whole world. Third observation here in the text. The Father has given the Son a work to accomplish. A work to accomplish. There are a few things in life that are as satisfying as a job well done, right? Like that you get to the end of something that's been hard and difficult, Right? And, and, and that job well done feeling. It's just, it's just a satisfying thing, and it's becoming a fleeting thing in our, our culture, our microwave culture, where everything's now, now, now. We want it instant. We want it yesterday. Instant gratification. But, uh, but even, even when the payoff takes a long time, a job well done is satisfying. Jess and I had some opportunities to do that last week as Desmond was staying in Louisiana with my parents. He stayed an extra week after we came back, or actually two, two weeks. And, uh, and so we took some, some time to do some big jobs that we've been wanting to do when we had some kid-free time. And Jess deep cleaned the house and, and, and mopped the floors with that good-smelling stuff, not just the Swiffer that we do when you're trying to do it quick, but like the, the deep clean. It smelled fantastic. And I had a day where I had, I had 11 or 12 hours, and I sandblasted the frame of the 64 Chevy that I've been restoring. And... And it's, it's awful. Let me just say the takeaway there is that I don't care if I ever see a sandblaster again, especially when the sun is just like, 
but the job's finished and, it's, and, it, and it pays off. It's, it's, it's grueling, nasty, filthy work. Jeff's mopping the floors and sandblasting the frame. But when you're done, the house smells so good. And, and the frame looks so good. And you're ready to move on to the next project with the restoration of the, of the truck. The payoffs, the job is done and it's a rewarding thing. But it's true that nothing in this life merits true and ultimate satisfaction. Right? Like since none of our work is perfectly good, it's stained by sin. Moreover, it's never finished. Right? Like an immaculately cleaned house is going to get dirty again. And a a 56-year-old truck frame is going to get rusty again. It's what's going to happen. Our satisfaction is is partial, and it's fleeting at best. But there's one person, and we see it in our text this morning, who is completely and eternally satisfied with his work. He's perfectly accomplished his mission, his his job, his work that he was sent to do. In verse 4, you see it. Jesus says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. We're looking at what the Father's given the Son this morning. That's, our, that's the theme that we're drawing out of this, this chapter. And here in verse 4, we see one of the things that he's given him to do is a job, work to do, a mission. And he did it perfectly. He did it perfectly. Now think about that for a second. As Jesus is praying here, thinking back over his 30-plus years of, of ministry on this earth, at this crucial moment before his arrest and his trial and his death, he doesn't perceive in this prayer, at this time, thinking back, he doesn't perceive in his life either evil committed, nor any good thing that he didn't do, that he omitted, that he just skipped over, meaning that everything he did, he did perfectly. Can you imagine that? That that, that in a human's life, a human being's life, a life that was about to end, by the way, proving that it was indeed human, that he was indeed fully man, there are zero spots, zero blemishes, zero hiccups, Zero things that he wished he could go back and have a do-over or that he could go back and revisit. Things, things that he could change or omit from his life. There's nothing. What truth this is, church. You know how you can trust the eternal son of God? Because there's zero evidence from anything that we see on his life in earth, on earth or in his prayer here as he's, as he's pray, praying and reflecting on his life. We have zero cases where he's failed his mission. So what makes you think he's going to going to start failing now? What makes, makes you think that he would let down on his job or his, his mission now that he's seated at the right hand of the Father? Friends, this is more than just heady doctrine or theology. The perfection of the Son of God is fuel today for your radical obedience to him. You can go and do whatever hard thing he's called you to do. Why? Because he's done his job perfectly and he's continuing to do it at the right hand of the Father. We can do our job because he perfectly did his. Well, the Father didn't just give him a job to do. He gave him words to say. That's the fourth thing we see in the text this morning. The Father has given the Son words to say. If uh, you've ever raised four-year-olds, then you know that words, (laughs) there are lots of words. There are just tons of words. There are so many words. Uh, What's this? What's that? How does this work? What does this do? What do I do with this? That we could summarize this season of our lives, me and Jess, as just Just one word, words, words all the time. I think that there are so many words and questions in our house that we sometimes dream of more questions than words. There are words all the time. And here in the text, that's that's exactly what Jesus tells us, that the Father gave the Son words, a particular claim that he was to say, that he was to do, that he was going to carry out on this earth. And that claim comes in verse 8, but you, you really see it as we read 6 through 8 together. Um, as we think about the content of Jesus' words here, listen as I read verses 6 through 8. Jesus says, I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. 
Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. So the change occurred as a result of Jesus' words, uh, and believers, Christians, have not come to know the truth that, that he was sent of the Father. Verse 8. So that means that whatever Jesus said, like, think about this too. We have some of Jesus' words here in the Gospels, in, 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 the, in the Bible, but think about this. Everywhere they walked, everywhere they went, every casual word that was said as they trod down some dusty path, every word, everything Jesus said hinged on this truth that the Father sent him. In other words, the Gospel. Everything that he was sent to say could be summarized in that. The words that he has given them has led them to believe this truth. He's the Messiah. He's the Savior. Now, many people in our world today would say that they admire Jesus in some way, right? He's a good teacher. He's a good moral human being that would give us examples for how to live. Or that he was a a great prophet, right? The, The Islamic faith teaches that, that he's one of the best prophets. But saving faith... Eternal life in heaven requires that we realize this relationship between Jesus and the Heavenly Father. That's what Jesus is saying here, verse 8, that the grace of Jesus is the grace of the Father. The power of Jesus is the power of God. The truth that Jesus speaks is God's truth. The blood of Jesus was offered by the Father for our cleansing and our forgiveness. That's what Jesus is getting back to, that whatever you may think about Jesus, if it doesn't lead you to this truth, that he's the Son of God and he died on your behalf, what point is it believing anything he said? Now, it's vital for us, I think we would all say it's important for us to abide by God's word, to obey his commands, to read the scriptures and and obey, be obedient. But here, Jesus is emphasizing another whole point concerning God's word. Jesus is saying that keeping God's word leads you to Jesus, right? Like the Pharisees, think about the context here and who was opposing Jesus and who would be arresting Jesus and leading to his, his death. The Pharisees, they thought that they were keeping God's word. In fact, they had this radical obedience, not just to the law of God, but they had layers of man-made rules and traditions that they heaped up on top of the the law of God, so they didn't even get close to breaking the law of God, yet they rejected Christ. And what Jesus is saying here is, don't be like that. Don't be a a rule follower, a churchgoer, a a do-gooder, a moralistic person, and miss the one to whom all of those things are pointing to. They're meant to drive you to Christ because you're not able to do them. The law is meant to drive you to Christ because he's the one who perfectly accomplished it. People are, are, are being called here. Jesus' people are, are being called to, to the word of God, to see the claims of Scripture, and believe that he's the one who sent me. Verse 8. Listen, any religion, any church that you may go to, any preacher that you may enjoy listening to, if, if, they, if they give you just a list of things to do, steps to follow, and those things, if they don't lead you to Christ, then get away from it. Don't listen to it. We're, we're not just about behavior modification or moral reform. It's meant to lead us to the Christ. That's what he's saying. Everything that you've given me to say, I've said it. Everything you've given me to do, I've done it. And all of that is meant to lead us to Christ. In summary, the mark of a true Christian, a true follower of Christ, is one who has compared the claims of Jesus, everything that he said in the Gospels, with the teachings of the whole Bible, the prophecies of the Old Testament, and everything that happened in in Old Testament, in the New Testament. And you've compared those two, and in fact, it shows you that Jesus is the one foretold by God, that he is the one who came to do exactly what the prophecies said. 
to die on your behalf, the once and for all sacrifice for sin. We may not understand everything in the Bible. Here's the thing. Anytime you open the Bible, you're becoming an interpreter. You're reading scripture and you're interpreting the understanding, the meaning for yourself. And we have much to learn. I have much to learn. But at a bare minimum, the very foundation of everything we believe is that as a believer in Christ, as a Christian, we look to the scriptures and we see Jesus there and we know, yes, he was sent by the Father. The gospel comes out and we believe it. That's what we believe, that he died on our behalf. That's what Jesus is saying. Everything that was said should point to that truth. Number five, the Father has given the Son his name. You see that in verse 11 and 12? Listen to what Jesus says here specifically about his name, a name that the Father's given him. He says, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given to me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them. Um, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scriptures might be fulfilled. He said it twice, didn't he? You notice it? He said it, he said it uh, in verse 11, then he said it in verse 12. It's not like Jesus had his amnesia. He, he didn't just, oh, I, f- I forgot that I just said that. Sorry. Oops. It wasn't like a broken record. He's just skipping, you know, saying the same thing over and over. No, this was intentionality. He's saying this for emphasis. He's saying this for our benefit so that we hear it and don't just glance over it. There's so much in these two verses. We're going to focus simply on the, this idea, the recognition of his name and what the name there is meant to, to do in our hearts and for our belief and for our actions. There's so many things that we could observe about the name of Jesus, and we should often. I think one of the things we could do in our growth groups is just sit and say, what does the name of Jesus mean? What is it, what is it meant for you and for your life? I mean, we could, we, could, we could talk about the fact that there's only one name under heaven whereby men may be saved, or that, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord, or that his name, literally, Yeshua, is Joshua in the Old Testament, the Hebrew pronunciation and, and the way it would have been used. It's, it's, a, it's a Hebrew word, Yeshua, the same as Joshua, and it means Yahweh is salvation. Yes, Yahweh is salvation. We could say that his name is the, the specific name that, that Jesus uh, was given by the angel that he's, as he commanded Jesus' parents, call him Yahweh is salvation and how that absolutely is true. We could talk about how the fact that blind Bartimaeus, right, in the Gospels is the first person to give Jesus another title or name as, he, as he's coming towards the blind man, he calls out son of David. And for the first time, this title is affixed to Jesus of Nazareth, the carpenter's son. He's the son of David, the promised one, the Messiah, the Savior, the anointed one. There's so much we could say about the name, but I want us to zoom in on why it comes up here in the text. In Jesus' prayer, why is he reflecting on the name? In the context, Jesus is praying that Christians be kept in the name. You see that in both instances where he's using it there. And there are sort of two ways to understand this statement from Jesus. The first way to understand it is that the name itself, the name of God that Jesus has, is the power for salvation of his people. This would go back to verses like Proverbs 8, 18, verses, uh, verse 10. It says, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. And so that's absolutely true. That's certainly true. We find salvation in the name of our God. But I think it's the second way of understanding that Jesus intends here based on the context and, every, context and everything else he's talking about. Jesus is praying that believers would remain true to the revelation of God that he has given them. Not falling away in unbelief or in heresy or, or false doctrine or teaching. 
that he's about to return and, and ascend to be with the Father, and that when that happens, they would remain in the name. Now think about that for a second and the implications there. These are the final days. Jesus prays, the, the longest prayer that we have on record, Jesus praying, and this is his ultimate concern. This is what he's praying for. When he gets down to it and he's asking the Father something, the Father's given him this name for a purpose. That, it's not that you would be comfortable. It's not that we would have, have nice little lives or that we would avoid suffering or that we would go through life with ease. It's that you'd be true to God through faith in Christ's gospel even when times get tough, even when you go through suffering, even when circumstances are difficult and you wouldn't fall away in those times, that you would remain true to the name that's above every name, the name that he's been given of God. I'm sure we all know of people that have once walked with God made a profession of faith and, and walked with him for some time and then fell away when tragedy or a string of tragedies came into their life. And here, listen to Christ's prayer. It's for that moment. He's praying for you, believer. He's praying for me that in that moment we wouldn't fall away from the name, that we'd be kept in that name, the name that the Father has given him. Uh, Matthew Henry, the Puritan commentator on Scripture, he paraphrases Jesus' words here. It's, it's a beautiful paraphrase. He says, keep them in the knowledge and fear of your name. Keep them in the profession and service of your name, whatever it costs them. Keep them in the interest of your name and let them be ever faithful to this. Keep them in your truths and your ordinances and in the way of your commandments. What if we could learn to talk like that to one another, church? Like, like just practical here, application, like in this way. Like the way Jesus is praying, the way the, the, the Puritan Matthew Henry is, is paraphrasing. Like when we're suffering, when I'm going through tragedy, that you could speak into my life and, and say, keep his name, brother. Like when I see you struggling or walking through circumstances that are unthinkable, that I could look at you and say, sister, keep his name. Keep his name. Walk in his name. Believe upon his name. It's the name that the Father has given him. It's the name that's above every name. Believe upon this name and trust in it. And then number six, and this is our last observation in the text this morning. Last thing that the Father has given the Son in this text. The Father has given the Son glory. You see it in verses 22 through 24. Let's read those two together. Verse 22, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one as we are one. And verse 24, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Now, there's more to unpack here than we have time for. We'll do some of that in the next three weeks. But Christ's glory is what we're zooming in upon because it was, a, it was given by the Father to the Son before the foundation of the world, verse 24. And that glory, verse 22, is meant to accomplish unity, that is, a supernatural unity in us as his people, right? Like globally and as the gathered body of the church. So our gathering this morning, Poplar Spring Baptist Church, as strange as it is, spread out in three different, maybe four different, five different locations this morning, that unity that we have is not based upon the lowest common theological denominator. We believe there's a God or, or some higher power. It's not based on some political identity or some moralistic identity or cultural or societal identity. It's based upon this truth that God has given the sun glory. He's given it to us. That's what's meant to unify us, supernaturally derived, because we believed upon the name. We've experienced that glory, the glory of the cross. That this execution device, a cross, these two pieces of wood on which criminals were hung, that is the glory that we've been given. That's our inheritance. That's our glory that we've been given in Christ. 
That's what Christ is praying for. That's what Jesus is praying for in those moments. That his body, the church, globally, would be unified and together as he and the Father are. That's a high bar. That's a high bar. That we would have the sort of unity that has existed in the eternal trinity. And then, (laughs) he prays for us to have that now. Then, in heaven, to experience it fully where he is. (laughs) That's the, that's the incredible thing with this text. It's not this unattainable thing that he prays for us. We'll see his glory then and there in a way that's not possible here and now, right? Like he prays for it here and now among us as his people, but there we'll actually experience it. So the struggles, the trials, the sufferings here don't compare to the glory there when we'll see him, right? That's the truth that we see in this text. That's the takeaway from this phrase from Jesus. We'll see the full display of his divine goodness. We'll experience the presence of Jesus with unveiled splendor. We get to experience him face to face. We get a taste of it now through his word, by the indwelling of his spirit, when we gather with his body. But in the future, we'll experience full delight and full joy, unhindered fellowship with Christ. What a day that'll be. John Calvin says, at this time, we see Christ's glory as someone shut up in the dark that sees feeble and glimmering light coming through small cracks. If you can picture as a kid just sitting in a closet and there's a little bit of light coming under the doorway or whatever. Christ here prays and shows us that he wants us to go on to enjoy the full brightness of his glory in heaven. What a day that'll be. When we'll see him as he is, when we'll see him face to face, what a privilege and a promise that awaits us. And we who know Jesus, we're going home one day. We're going home one day where we'll enjoy his glory, unaffected by this world of sin, unaffected by divorce or abuse or untainted by sin that we may struggle with on this earth, temptations or some vice that we seem to be running back to some temptation that seems to always jump up and grab us, one day we'll be freed from those things because we're going to the Father's house. We're going to the Father's house where we'll see Christ in his full glory. Johnny Erickson taught us, she tells the story of a, a boy named Jeff. I'll read this quote to you. It's, it's really good. I think it illustrates what's going on here in the text as Jesus prays for us. Tata says, at the end of a five-day retreat for families, Affected by disabilities, a microphone was passed around so that all the participants could share a a couple sentences of how meaningful, how fun the week had been. Little freckle-faced, red-haired Jeff raised his hand. We were so excited to see what Jeff would say because Jeff had won the hearts of all of us at the family retreat. Jeff has Down syndrome. He took the mic and he put it up to his mouth and he said, let's go home. Later, his mother told told me his dad couldn't come to the family retreat because he had work. And Jeff just really missed his daddy and wanted to go back home and see him. I think that's what Jesus, he's been there. He's experienced eternal joy and glory with the Father in, in, a, in a unity that cannot be broken. And he's experienced that and he desires it for us. So as he's praying for us in this 17th chapter, he knows it won't be long. Life is like a vapor. So whatever suffering they're enduring right now, help them to be unified in the midst of it, knowing that one day they won't have it anymore and they'll get to experience the glory of King Jesus himself for all eternity. That's what he's praying for. And he misses daddy and he wants us to have it too. These are six statements where we see uh, this, this prayer from Jesus, what the Father has given to the Son. And we've sort of taken these statements independently, right? We kind of just jump through the text, and it's, it's, a, it's a hard and a different way. I, I've never preached a, a text, a chapter like this. But what I want you to see is that though we've taken these statements sort of independently, watch the beauty that unfolds when you connect them back together. Because remember, they're one prayer. Jesus didn't mean for them to be independent. They're, they're one fluid thing that Jesus is praying. So let's sew them back together and see what Jesus is saying. And watch the beauty that unfolds when you do. 
that before the foundation of the world, the Father gave the Son a name that was before every name. That was our observation number five. In addition, the Father gave the Son a job to do, a job that only he could do as fully man and fully God. That was observation number three. And that job included living a perfect life and dying our death as a substitute on our behalf, rising from the dead, forever conquering our worst enemy of sin and death. But that job also necessarily had the, the job of, of, of communicating, of giving words that would communicate that truth, that he is the Messiah, the one who came to save his people from their sins. And he said every one of those words. That was observation number four. And that as those words are proclaimed by Christ and his followers who would come after him, me and you, people believe upon the name of Christ all over the globe in every nation, tribe, and among every tongue. And salvation is given because it's been put into Christ's hands to give. That's observation number one and two. And all of this, the whole thing is the Father's gift of glory to the Son, observation number six. All of this, though we may have taken them as individual observations this morning, all of this in Jesus' prayer, it's not disconnected. It's meant to be together. It fits together because it's the story of our redemption. That's what Jesus is praying as he awaits his trial and execution. The redemption of Christ tells the story, or the, 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 the prayer of Christ tells the story of our redemption, of him shedding his blood on our behalf. So will you come to him today? This king is worth your life, worth your worship, worth everything. And on the cusp of this most great suffering that, that, that anyone has ever endured, that's what he's praying for. And he offers that to you today. Would you come to him? Let's pray together.